In recent years, Catholics in the United States have been devastated by confirmed reports of priestly sexual abuse and Episcopal cover-ups. In the wake of these reports, many Catholics have lost their faith and many more no longer trust the church. How are we supposed to make sense of this scandal? How do we hold on to our faith in the midst of it? And how do we prevent such evil from continuing to take root in the church? Today, we'll discuss those questions with Bishop Robert Barron, author of Letter to a Suffering Church, A Bishop Speaks on the Sexual Abuse Crisis. I'm Father Dave Pavanka, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Please stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And we're talking today about faith in the midst of scandal. I'm joined by our panelist, Dr. Regis Martin. How are you this morning? Uh, I'm always thrilled it's, to be here, but particularly honored to be here in the company of uh, Bishop Barron. It's great to have you here, Dr. Martin. Yeah. And as always, Dr. Scott Hahn, which is always a blessing to have you. How are you this morning? Doing well. Great, thanks. great. And it's a great blessing to welcome our special guest today is Bishop Robert Barron, Auxiliary Bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Bishop Barron is the founder of the Catholic Media Ministry Word on Fire and host of Catholicism, an award-winning documentary, and he's done many, many other things. It's a blessing to have you with us, especially to talk about a topic that in many ways is difficult to talk about, but so necessary to talk about. Father Dave, thank you. Great to be with you. I've thank watched you. this show for many years, so I'm delighted to, to be on with you. That's today. our blessing. Yeah, so we're, we're discussing, obviously, the, the letter you wrote, the book you wrote, Letter to a Suffering Church, which personally, the first time I read it, was just very healing, even for me. Mm -hmm. and, and, and being a priest throughout my whole priesthood, we've had to deal with this. But what inspired you to finally write this? I can tell you exactly what inspired me was uh, my friend Gary Jansen, who was an editor at the time at, at uh, Random House. He, he's edited books of yours. That's right. Well, one morning, it was about 6 o'clock West Coast time. He would have been just at his desk in New York. And he called me. The, the phone rang, and it was Gary. And he said, uh, you know, I was praying about this, and I thought there needs to be a book written about the scandal, but not from a legal standpoint, not from a you know, juridical standpoint, right. but from a spiritual standpoint, and you're the guy to do it. So there I was, in, you know, sitting in my room at 6 in the morning. And I thought, yeah, okay, that mm. makes sense. Mm. So long story short, Random House didn't do it. They couldn't get the timing exactly right. I wanted to get the book out quickly. So then Word on Fire, my own, you know, ministry published it. But it was Gary who uh, inspired me to write it. Mm. And it's become a bestseller, right? <laughs> yeah, thank God. It sold about 1.4 million Good copies. Yeah. Yeah. Since 2019. Yeah, and a lot of parishes picked it up. I think about yeah. 6,000 parishes around the country picked it up and, and distributed it to the people. Thanks so, be to God. Yeah. Can I just ask, what was it like to write that? I mean, it's very personal, and, and you see a priest, a bishop, a Catholic wrestling with these issues. Just your prayer, what, what went into writing that? It was, I think on page one I say it was a, a cri de coeur sort of book. It was a cry of the heart book. Mm -hmm. I wrote it quickly, I must say, after Gary called me. I think within, I don't know, a couple weeks maybe, three weeks I had written it. Now in between a lot of things I was doing as an auxiliary bishop, but it was, it was, um, 
in, I, I felt a, a compulsion almost to write it right, because yeah. I thought it would be valuable for the church. It was painful. In a way, it was easy to write. It sort of came out of me uh, mm. rather quickly. Uh, but it was a, a sense of a real need on the part of the church as I wrote it. Um, painful, but I, I thought it was a good exercise too. Well, you describe it as a lacerating personal yeah. experience, yeah. and and it's sort of lacerating to have to read it uh, yep. as well. It's a very depressing uh, subject, but you yeah. treat it so incisively uh, that I think you come away consoled. In, in fact, you mentioned early on that uh, you felt yourself immunized almost right. against this uh, this epidemic because it forced you to see that there is still something good uh, in Mother Church, in the mystical body. Right. I mean, I wanted always to stress this is a divine comedy we're dealing with. So, you know, we know how this story ends. It's a happy ending. Jesus Christ is Lord, risen from the dead. And all of that is true, even as we go through this lacerating period. Uh, the immunization, I referred to, uh, I think you knew of Scott at Mundelein. Was he still there? The legendary Chicago priest, oh, yeah. Father Charlie Meyer, we call him oh. Charlie. Charlie taught for 90s. decades at Mundelein, taught generations of Chicago priests. And he taught a course in church history. And of course, he went through all the great moments in church history, but he took an almost impish delight, I would say, in sharing some of the you know, dark side of the church. And at first, we you know, pious seminarians were a little scandalized by this, but it was a kind of like immunizing right. vaccination. Yeah. Right. So we, yeah, we have been here before. Yeah. And that inspired one of the chapters of the book to say, Yes, we're going through, in many ways, a uniquely painful time, but we have been through similar things in the past. And that's important for Catholics to know. But you, you suggest, I, I think, that the proportions of the iniquity are yeah. almost unprecedented. And, and you reach for a hypothesis, which I find very plausible, that this was something diabolically mm -hmm. uh, uh, designed and executed. When I was going through uh, school years ago, there was a tendency to see the devil as simply a, a literary device, a symbol of evil, etc. Yeah. This experience, and most of my priesthood, we're similar that way, mm -hmm. has been under the cloud of this Absolutely. thing. You know, so in Chicago, the first uh, rumbles of it were in the early 90s. I'm ordained in 86. So I had a few years there of, of uh, freedom from it, but most of my priesthood has been under this. And I refer to it as a diabolical masterpiece, the devil's masterpiece, because it's affected negatively the work of the church in almost every way. It's hard to imagine um, a, a better way to undermine the work of the church than this. And so I, I do see it very much as the work of the devil. Um, now, I don't want to give the devil too much credit. I mean, he's not God's rival. Yeah. The Lord is in charge, but yet the Lord, for his reasons, permits the devil to work. And I think this is his masterpiece. Certainly in the American church, we've never been through worse. If you'd asked me, you know, 30 years ago, I would have said, yeah, the 19th century when they're burning down convents and parishes and there were political parties organized against the church, I would have said that's the worst time. This is worse than that. Right. You know? Bishop, what, what makes the last couple of years even worse? You, you speak about the the tragedy of what the priest did, but then also the scandal and the cover-up, and it seemed like the last couple of years was just different. Because of the McCarrick thing, and I, I think it's because people thought we had turned the corner. Right. And, uh, you know, as, as bishop, I'll go to the parishes and I say Mass, I'm always, you know, accoutred in all of the regalia of the church, so there I'm standing as a, you know, ecclesiastical exclamation point, you know, there I'm standing as a symbol of the church, and so a lot of people would pour out not not anger so much, you'd get that, but I would say mostly 
tears of frustration. Mm -hmm. That's what I sensed. Mm. And I think it was because they thought, we had turned the corner on this thing. And then it, it, it seemed revived. Yeah, in some ways, I suppose we did. You know, back in 02, the Dallas Charter, mm -hmm. that seemed to be the worst. Yeah. You know, and then we discover, well, you know, that was the way the church dealt with the presbyterate, you know, mm -hmm. for the most part, priests. But then to realize that the people who were responsible for enforcing that were themselves going unaccountable. Right. And to have this predatory prelate who was not only guilty of predation on seminarians and young boys, but also of protecting and promoting others, you know, it, you know, the painting, this diabolical masterpiece, really did have a central figure yeah. there. Yeah. And it was really hard. I mean, I was surprised at how hard, how the anger was there in me and others, but I think there was a sorrow. Yeah. Entering into Gethsemane with our Lord and realizing that these people you have lived with and loved are about to abandon or deny or betray. You know, none of us are Jesus, but all of us felt close to him yeah. as he's looking down and realizing, you know, or we're realizing that it just, it's, 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 it's more of the same, only now it's worse and it's, it's personal. And to be honest, the, the outcome of that particular individual's case was deeply frustrating. You know, to laicize that person implied a theology or a view of the laity mm. that was to me demeaning. Yeah. Like laity is punishment. Becoming yeah, I mean, here yeah. is a like, predator yeah. cleric who is promoting, protecting, and, and, and guilty of all kinds of things. What shall we do with him? We'll, we'll lay aside and we'll make a lay person out of him. You know, and it's like, if, if excommunication doesn't apply in this instance, then we might as well retire the term. You know, and not to get back at him, but to get him yeah. back to the Lord and back to the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, you cite that instance. Yeah. For his sake, you know, that he'll be punished, but his soul will be saved. So yeah. it's not just to purify the church in Corinth, it is to salvage that man's soul as well. And that's very important, isn't it? You know, lest we, we devolve into a, a sort of, you know, retribution mindset. Right. It's right. always for the sake of Vengeance. healing of the, of the body, healing of the mystical body and everyone that participates in it, including perpetrators of, uh, of sin and crime. So that's an important point. But I completely get the frustration. I completely get it. <laughs> well, now, I think we, go the, ahead, the, the McCarrick case, I think, presents a, a unique, almost exquisite irony, because yeah. here is the guy who pretty much engineered the O2 uh, yeah. settlement, uh, and it turns out he was an architect of abuse, a serial clerical abuser, yeah. a kingmaker in, in yeah. terms of setting up others. Uh, it, it was really shocking. It was almost a bridge too far. I mean, and this yeah. sense of impotent rage was augmented by these revelations. Yeah, yeah, a very, as a very young priest, when this all started off, I sent a letter to all the cardinals in the United States at the time, and I asked them to uh, offer a time of repentance. And the only one who actually responded to me was uh, Cardinal O'Connor from New York. Mm. But I think this is why this one bothered me so much, was the, as a young priest, and I looked to them, and and. And when this came down, it just, I remember, we were at a conference, I was here on campus, and it just, those things that I tried to, and, and I think that's why this one has been so difficult, and in the last couple of years has been so difficult, particularly for 
me and yeah. priests and and our, we we look to our fathers and, yeah. and 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 I get that that's how the lady and, and the other population felt about what what had happened with the clergy. Well, well Bishop, you it. describe it I think with a wonderful eloquence uh, when when you give us a portrait of the priest, that he's really configured to Jesus yeah. in an ontological way. Mm -hmm. And when he abuses uh, young people, it's as if God himself yep. were violating there's, us. There's the smile the diabolical of God part. is yes, no longer being It's the being shadow bestowed. side of what's so beautiful about the priesthood. So I said, you know, when a priest smiles on you, it's as though God smiles on you. Yeah. When a priest forgives you sacramentally, God is forgiving yeah. you. But by the same token, if a priest uh, abuses you, it's as though it's, there's almost a metaphysical dimension to it, as though God right. it's has supernatural turned in. child abuse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think that is the real shadow side of this. Well, you, know, you, you quote Peter Damien. Uh, this yeah. is a kind of spiritual uh, incest. Yes, and I think he's such an illuminating figure, isn't he? So, 11th century figure who doctor saw, of reform, right? And he saw exactly the same thing, exactly what you're talking about. That what made it so heinous in his own time was older clerics preying on younger clerics. Well, that's exactly what we had in the McCarrick mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. And this was in the aftermath of Pope Benedict IX, arguably right. the single worst right. and most diabolical pope. Right, but I think Peter Damien is an important figure for our time, and I think revisiting what he said and did uh, is important for our time. Um, you know, there's always hope because God raises up the saints yeah. uh, in every era, in every time of corruption, saints are raised up, and he's a good example of it. A prophetic voice, and someone calling for real reform. Yeah. Um, you know, and so we have, as you mentioned, the Dallas Accords. And one thing that breaks my heart a bit is statistics show that Catholics themselves don't know a lot about the Dallas Accords. They don't know what we did in 2002. Now, more recently, the Vos Estes Lux Mundi, the statement of the Vatican. So now looking at the problem of, of bishops who are abusive. So the church has taken important juridical steps, and I think those are, are key. Mm -hmm. But there has to be a, a spiritual and moral reform at a deeper level. Sure. You know, when the Dallas Accords were promulgated in 02, we were, we were together with still a relatively unknown bishop in La Crosse, Bishop Raymond Burke. And Kimberly and I had breakfast with him, mm -hmm. and uh, she was the one leading the conversation. And she said, you know, uh, how does this make you feel? And you could just see the shift in the conversation topic. And, he looked at her, then he looked at me, and we watched as his eyes welled up with tears. This was not in any way mm. programmed, you know. And he just began to cry, and he said, it makes me feel the sorrow of Christ. And, you know, she said, well, you know, what shall we do? What, what should you do? What should others do? And uh, he said, all I can think of is sackcloth and ashes, mm -hmm. along with the tears of real repentance, anything less. He said, will be procedural. And I yeah. think that's why and, I was yeah. frustrated, honestly, when I did that was because there, I don't think there was that sense of embracing the repentance that was necessary for us. And I'm not positive we're there yet. Yeah. That it has to be something more continuous. You know, one thing I said in the book, as I was rereading it in preparation for today, and I got a little heat uh, from some priests for this. I talked about a rot in the priesthood. I didn't mean, of course, every priest is bad, the whole thing is a, no, no, not at all. Overwhelming majority of priests are great, good, and holy people. Nevertheless, it seems to me there was something that got into the priesthood that really was deeply wrong. And that's a spiritual question, that's a moral question. It's even a doctrinal question on how we understand the priesthood, mm -hmm. how we understand the moral life. Yeah. And I think we have to address that. You can go too far the other way, you can overstate, like every That's priest right. is terrible, 
Or you can understate it and say, well, a few bad apples, you know. Right. right. There's something in between. And that's, sure. I, I was trying to find the language by saying there, there was a rot in the priesthood. Well, well Shakespeare, I, I think, evokes it very well when he has the metaphor of lilies that fester. Yeah. They smell worse than weeds. <laughs> but that, that's a variation on a pretty ancient truth. Corruption, that the corruption of the best is really yeah. the worst corruption of all. You expect something more of alter Christos. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's I've said before, it's true that the statistics, you know, the percentages among priests are roughly the same as the general population. So right. they say about 4% of, of men tend to get involved in these abusive situations and mm -hmm. around the same percentage of the priesthood. Well, as though that exculpates right, us. Right, I right. mean, that's, I get it, and that's, a, that's an important objective measure. Uh, by the same token, you know, we should raise the bar a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we shouldn't settle for, oh, yeah, we're just like everybody else. Right. Uh, and let's just stop there, because we've got a lot more to talk about. So just stay with us as we continue on University Presents. We do indeed have to look hard at the wickedness in the church today. But we also have to be clear-eyed about the beauty and veracity and holiness on offer in that same church. These vessels are fragile, and many of them are downright broken. But we don't stay because of the vessels. We stay because of the treasure. Bishop Robert Barron, Letter to a Suffering Church. There is a place where education begins, and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about faith in the midst of scandal. Uh, Bishop, you mentioned a priest friend of yours, uh, Bishop Myers, uh, Father Meyer. Father right? Charlie Meyer, yeah. And uh, that he kind of focused on the dark times of the church. And I had a professor when I was an undergraduate uh, by the name of Dr. Regis Martin. <laughs> Story time, Dr. Martin. But one of, things that he said, one of the things he said that actually, when I think back of my time at the university, this single class was one of the more formative classes 50 minutes in, in my time here. And he was talking about how the church is holy and she is scandalous. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a paradox in that. So where we find ourselves tragically is we've been here before, that unfortunately, that it's a part of a history of our church. Yeah, but in a way, you know, with the doctrine of original sin in mind is to be expected. I mean, we're yeah. a fallen, compromised people, and so we tend to sin. Um, the church is, the grace of the church is always greater. Where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. But from Paul's time, we see it in the Pauline letters, divisions and difficulties in the life of the church and up and down the centuries. As I say, the saints often come out of those times. Mm -hmm. you know, so the greatest saints are raised up in response to it. But um, in a way, I think the doctrine of original sin should, um, should cause us to expect this sort of thing no. without uh, countenancing it for a minute. But, but it, so it happens. Yeah. Well, I think you, you say again early on in the book that what characterized the primitive church was 
sin, stupidity, scandal, yeah. weakness, malice. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. No. You know, when Chesterton uh, wanted to know what's wrong with the world, he began with Chesterton. I am. I'm the problem. <laughs> Remedy that, and then maybe you can conquer poverty uh, in India. That's right, yeah. You know, this, this search for a pure church is understandable, yeah. but uh, it really is uh, an ill-fated quest. You know, you go back to the Old Testament, as you do, and you show that, you know, Lot is stuck in Sodom. You have also uh, other instances, too, of uh, uh, Eli, the priest yeah. at the time of uh, the beginning of First Samuel 1 and 2, yeah. uh, and other episodes. But not just, well, that was the Old Testament, what do you expect? But in the new things get better in the new Testament, right? By the time you get to the end of the fourth century, you know, you have the Donatists, and they're demanding a pure church. And in a time of persecution, people folded, and so you know those are not you know they're to be excluded. You know, one of one of the Donatists, Taconius, you recall, writes the Book of Rules that Augustine draws from, precisely because that Book of Rules got Taconius excommunicated from the Donatists. But he gave these seven rules, you know, the church's body, the whole Christ, Augustine grabbed hold of that. But the bipartite, the mixed body, that it has black and white, good and evil. And then he goes all the way through de temporibus's rule five, the times, it's always been this way, you know, recapitulation, it keeps coming back to it. And then finally, the mystical body of Satan is the seventh rule that Gregory picks up on as well as Augustine, because out of the best comes the worst. Yeah. You know, it's not just a Hitler, it's someone who has to subvert and pervert what it means to be in the person of Christ. And yeah. so it's bracing. But I mean, this was for young Ratzinger in the late 50s, something that gave to him that thing we call Augustinian realism, mm-hmm. you know, so that before and after the council, it's so rosy, it's almost romantic, yeah. you know, the yeah. world is about to uh, convert. And then afterwards, it seems to go to seed. And I think we need that sort of wisdom. We need that kind of saint like Augustine. We'll go back to, to the navigate. I'll stay with Augustine because in the uh, city of God, he gives us that image of, of Noah's Ark, basically. The church right. is like this little ark, a little microcosm of God's good order that's floating on this sea of, of sin and corruption. And so it's always been, Augustine says, from Old Testament times to his own time. So it's been this, this sort of uh, microcosm floats along, and there it is, under God's providence. With every beast. <laughs> yes, and it will always recede the earth. And right. so when the waters recede and we let the life out and it, God starts again, yes. But the typical way to see the church for Augustine was this little somewhat threatened ship you know, on the, on the stormy waters. I used to think about that all the time when I was studying in Paris, and I would always sit behind Notre Dame by the Seine there to do my reading. And you look up at the Notre Dame, now so compromised by the fire, mm-hmm. but um, like a great ship, this beautiful ship, right. making its way through the ages, right. but always on stormy seas. I mean, that's, that's from the Old Testament to, to our time. Yeah, and church history is not plotted to kind of conquer the world and all right. the political systems, if anything. The assurance is that the mystical body of Christ will undergo what the physical body of Christ underwent That's right. in stages. And so, you know, we really need to brace ourselves with that kind of recognition that if if Jesus didn't convert his world and yet it wasn't a failure, mm-hmm. you know, what we've got to make sure is that we convert ourselves. That's right. And where sin abounds, grace abounds the more. Right. So we're going through a very difficult time of sin in individual sin, you know, in the in the church institutionally. Where sin abounds, grace abounds the more, and that's the confidence. 
That's it. You know, that life will always come out of the ark and it will reseed and repopulate the earth. And so it goes. And you talk about that, Bishop, the reasons that we stay the, yeah. with, with all that's going on. So speak to that, that yeah. yes, there's difficulties, but the reason to stay far outweigh this. We know something I, I plot a great deal is the, uh, the number of the so-called nuns, right? The N-O-N-E-S, those who have abandoned the faith, are disaffiliated. Um, why do they disaffiliate? All kinds of reasons. But one is, number one, time and again, they don't believe the teaching of the church. They don't believe what we're saying. I think it's a crisis of God, finally. You know, <laughs> secularism, um, the buffered self, as Charles Taylor puts it, right? The self that's buffered from any contact with the transcendent. That's the problem. The church speaks of God. We speak of God. We always have from the beginning to the present day, but it's especially needed now. If the church is stifled, then who will speak of God? Yeah. You know? That was uh, the great theme, I think, of Solzhenitsyn, that men yeah. have forgotten, forgotten God. God. Yes. And, yes. and he assumed as his charism, his job, uh, to somehow reawaken the memory because it had been amputated yes. after 70 years of impacted uh, Soviet uh, oppression. Well, yes. a soft oppression has yes. invaded the West, and, and we it's have forgotten God. Absolutely, and it's a disaster. And I see it time and again in people's souls, their minds, and their hearts, because we're, we're built for God. You know? right. Our hearts are yearning for God, as Augustine said. And so you see these broken hearts all the time, and it's because a secularist ideology has been imposed. I call it the culture of self-invention. You, you make up what's true right. for you. You yeah. make up what's good for you. That's, that's, that's a, a poison to the soul. You know? So who speaks of God? Who raises the issue of God? If we don't do it, it's not going to get done. But, but how do we, th there's this tension that exists that, that times got past, that we would look to the church for the answers and consolation and wisdom, but yeah. now we are seen as the problem. So how do you bridge that gap that exists between this, this desire, this hunger for God, and yet those, the church who offers this is the one, the very one who has caused the problem, the struggles, the, the, the hurt and the pain. How do, you, how do we bridge that? We need saints. I think, you know, my years at, at the seminary, uh, both as a professor then as a rector, uh, I was always amazed. These young guys would come, you know, and I'd interview them. And they were coming of age and discerning during this awful period. So I, I didn't discern during an awful period. When I was discerning the priesthood, priesthood was held up on a, on a mm -hmm. pedestal. My parents had enormous respect for the priesthood. Church was, was largely beloved in the, in the wider society. Now. You know, au contraire, right? right? So I'd say to these young guys, uh, what was that like as you're discerning the priesthood and your, your parents in some cases, your friends in most cases, think you're crazy? Yeah. And they would say almost to a, a person, I want to be part of the solution. Yeah. They, they felt this call to be part of the solution at this difficult time. They want to be saints, you know? Mm -hmm. they, they want to follow the Lord with, with purity of heart. So that's the solution ultimately is we have to we have to become saints. No, I, I can testify personally to this. So the summer of shame, as we called 2018, yeah. with the McCarrick scandal and the Pennsylvania grand jury report and much else. Uh, I remember the, the day, the hour, the moment when uh, my two sons were going back oh, gotcha. to the seminary yeah. to uh, begin another school year of formation for the priesthood for the Diocese of Steubenville. And we had tried hard to avoid all ecclesiastical gossip during our dinner table conversations. Mm -hmm. We have a good thing that each person has to share for us to share thanks. Uh, but it couldn't help but come up at times, you know. Yeah. And, and so I felt 
a constraint. I, 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 I held the door. I'm like, wait a second. Before you leave, gentlemen, are you sure you know what you're doing, you know, um, given all of this? And uh, Joe looked at Jer, Jer looked at Joe, and Joe spoke as the younger, but the taller, he's 6'5". He said, Dad, we need holy priests like never before. Yes, we know what we're doing, but please pray for us. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, hmm. I'll do that, I assure you, yeah. more, more every day, but more than ever, you know. Yeah. We need it now. Yeah, I, right. I think of uh, Cardinal Seurat's uh, recommendation that you need sanctity first, then yep. you can worry about That's structures. Right. Yeah, quite and right. he says he says uh, if your bishop isn't a saint, well then why don't you become one? Yeah, uh, and that may edify him. Yeah. Who knows? No, quite right. Quite right. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jose Maria's line: Every age faces a crisis, and it's always a crisis of saints. And, and in the meantime, he says, we have to resist what he describes as the Judas uh, temptation, which is to bring down God, uh, to abolish Christ, because after all, he didn't bring us the kingdom. Uh, we wanted it straight away, and he yeah. betrayed us. Yeah. And so he got what he deserved. Uh, that has to be kept uh, at uh, arm's length. Yeah. But it's yeah. tempting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And in the midst of this, what, what can the layperson do or the person who's in the pews and, and just wrestling with this and watching it going on. I remember I gave a homily one time and I, and I apologize that they're the ones who have to deal with it, right? They're the ones who are at the water cooled, cooler. They're the ones at the desk that people are mocking and no fault of their own. So what can they do? I hear it all the time, you know, from the, the lay folks, exactly that, that it's, yeah. it's tough to be Catholic yeah. now. And, you know, gosh, from my parents' generation, that never came up. No, it no, was never no, an issue no, for them. Really. They're proud to be Catholic, and maybe there was some, you know, anti-Catholicism here and there. But uh, the lay people today face it in a big way. Um, it's a cross they have to bear. I, I don't mean that as a as a little trite, you know, uh, obiter dictum. I mean, I think that's at the heart of the spiritual life: is that we're all given a cross to bear, and in some ways, the laity are carrying that cross. Um, become a saint. Become as great a Catholic as you can. Pray for your priests above all. Uh, don't cooperate with this problem. I mean, I think if you see a problem, you see a, a difficulty in a, in a priest, report it, talk about it, come forward with it. Uh, don't tolerate it, put up with it, be part of, of the solution that way. Um, be a great Catholic writer, be a great Catholic uh, politician, be mm-hmm. a great Catholic uh, business leader. You know, there's the Vatican II vision, is the laity are meant to sanctify the world. You know, there's the thing about the laity, you know, priests and bishops are meant to, to sanctify and to teach and to govern the church. The laity are sent into their proper sphere, Vatican II right. says, which is the... Sanctify, not just to right. normalize or sanctify. to sanitize or to, and you know, regulate or exactly. restrain. And by being a great Catholic investor, <laughs> and not just incidentally Catholic, but Catholic in your soul as an investor, as a banker, as a business leader, as a teacher, as a journalist. Now you sanctify the world. And I think this is, for us as a Franciscan university, particularly a third order regular, this was what Francis saw, was that he, yeah. he took men and women who were part of the lady, and if society was going to be transformed and changed, you had to do it from the inside. You can't yeah. look on the outside. And, and I think this is the beginning part of it. I think it was George Weigel's book, Courage to be Catholic, who said the first scandal in all of this was failure to be disciples. Mm-hmm. Is, is that we just were not disciples of Jesus, and, and, and everything falls apart at that point. When we talk, uh, you know, maybe about moral relativism, because that was, that was part of the rot that set in, I think, in the years I was coming of age, there was a tendency toward a moral relativism. Well, you know, I know it's serious, but you know, in these cases we can... That leads down a very bad road. 
Mm-hmm. And in some ways, we see the, uh, the end of that, of that bad journey. But it's not the end of the story. No. And that's what's important for us. So stay with us on Franciscan University Presents, and we'll be back. There is simply never a good reason to leave the church. Never. Good reasons to criticize church people? Plenty. Legitimate reasons to be angry with corruption, stupidity, careerism, cruelty, greed, and sexual misconduct on the part of the leaders of the church, you bet. But grounds for turning away from the grace of Christ in which eternal life is found? No, never under any circumstances. Bishop Robert Barron, Letter to a Suffering Church. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back, and thanks for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents, and we are coming to you from the Com Arts Studio here on the campus of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and the equipment. The members of our theology, Dr. Martin and Dr. Hahn, have joined me in discussing faith in the midst of scandal with our guest, Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop, has anything changed? When, when we think of the formation of priests and everything, do you feel comfortable or confident that, that we know kind of how to get out of this and how to move forward. Yeah, I, I think important steps have been taken, you know, at the level of uh, protocols, and I can say this as a, a former rector of the seminary, what a guy has to go through just to get into a seminary, the screening involved now, and I say appropriately so. Um, you know, a, a sort of a legal background check, of course, the psychological course. testing, a whole series of interviews, we are extremely attentive to the background of the students coming to us. And then I'd say this, every guy at a seminary now is very much aware of this problem. Anyone involved in the Catholic Church going through virtuous training, you know, the training that that equips us now to be aware of this issue and to deal with it effectively. So all the seminaries, of course, have to go through that. I would say, yes, from a protocol standpoint, a lot of very good things are in place. And we should say this too. The Dallas Accords of 2002 made an enormous difference. As I said, even though a lot of Catholics don't know about them, they made objectively an enormous difference, and we shouldn't underplay that. The the McCarrick thing has been a revival of the scandal in a terrible way. Nevertheless, 2002 made a a huge difference. So I think these protocols at the seminary level, too, are very important. Uh, But the most important thing is spiritual uh, and moral formation. Mm But the students are deeply aware, the faculty, of course, are deeply aware of this issue. And I think addressing it in all the formation uh, programs, addressing it in the moral theology classes, that's very much in the forefront. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yes, steps, very important steps have been taken. Now, is it a perfect solution? Of course not, but. Um, You know, when I uh, uh, remember Pope St. John Paul, the great, really, what strikes me is that in almost every, talk that he would give to young people. He would remind them that 
you guys want peace, you want joy, you want to be happy, but you've got to remember possession is not going to bring that about. It's a function of being, yeah. and the exercise of that depends upon the knowledge and love of God, yeah. of Christ. And if you don't fall headlong in love with Christ, you're, 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 you're an impediment uh, uh, to uh, this pursuit of peace and joy. The priest especially has got to be someone who is passionately in love with Christ. He's conformed to him already, so he might as well, uh, you know, bloom where he's planted. He can't escape that identity. If he goes to hell, he takes it with him. Yeah. So he might as well blossom and bloom uh, as another Christ. Mm-hmm. Quite right. I mean, being matters, and, and the being is, is a groundedness in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Fulton Sheen always say? A priest is not his own. A priest does not belong right, to himself, right. but belongs to Christ. Um, and unless that sinks into every aspect of your being, you're not living it out properly. Go ahead. Well, I, I'm just going to say it's so true for the priests, you know, and you go back to O2 and the, the protocols of the Dallas Accords. Uh, but I think right now we're still waiting for something similar for the episcopacy. You know, this to me was the single step that needed yeah. to be taken, but I think more also needs to be done because, you know, a friend of mine, Stephen Bolivant, who's getting, he's a professor uh, and he's doing theological work, but using empiric, empirical sociological technique to show the effect of this kingmaker yeah. in the American ecclesiastical and especially the Episcopal. And I don't want to talk about this so much, um, but I do think that something more needs to be done you know, by the bishops, for the bishops, to really convince the lay people that they're serious, not just about enforcing this for the priests and the seminarians, but for themselves as well. But conversely, I, I think that blaming this on Vatican II is also just as uh, dangerous and foolish. Yeah. And, you know, I read the 16 documents, and they were really instrumental in converting me along with the scriptures and the fathers. Uh, but you mentioned uh, John Paul. And when Bishop Wojtyla, you know, goes back to Poland yeah. from Vatican II, you know, documents are not going to save the church. Right. Mm-hmm. The pastors are, the right. bishops, the shepherds. And his book, Sources of Renewal, mm-hmm. showed us that if you take the spirit and the letter of Vatican yeah. II and you apply this rigorously and comprehensively, look at Poland under the boot heel of the Nazis, then the communists, and not only did they survive, they flourished and they had saints. Yeah. And so to blame it on Vatican II is really, you know, uh, to, to shoot the messenger. But on the other hand, the fact is Vatican II, like all ecumenical councils, are not reducible or identifiable primarily with the documents. Yes, right. Yeah. The council are the thousands of bishops, and not just what they did, but to become so inebriated with the heady experience of being, you know, in the news and being celebrated by the secular media. It had an effect, I think, especially on the West, because the bishops came back and did something altogether different than the renewal that you see in the documents and that you can also see in Poland. And I, I think Too that's often. why, as grown children, my kids look to me and they're like, Dad, you know, give us leadership. You know, and leadership for fathers is non-anxious. It isn't like, you know, authoritarian. On the other hand, it's leadership. Yeah. It has to be taking the initiative as the apostles learned to do when the spirit of Pentecost really fell upon them. Can I share a Cardinal George story with you? Scott and I saw Cardinal George together just within weeks of his death. That's right, yeah. I brought you down there to talk to him. Great hero of mine, great mentor of mine. Cardinal George says something, I don't think he ever published on this, but he said, the death of Cardinal Meyer of Chicago was a disaster for the American church. 
What he meant was, of course, Meyer was Archbishop mm -hmm. of Chicago, late 50s, through the council. Right. He was at the council. He was a Bible scholar himself. That's right. He presided, actually, over, I think, the last session of the council. He was a major insider player at Vatican II. He comes home. He meets with all the priests of Chicago, like 1,500 strong. They give him a standing ovation. He explains the council. He died six months later in 1965. And with the death of Meyer, Cardinal George said, we didn't have that Wojtyla moment. Right. He was the one, he thought, who could best yeah. lead the implementation of the council. But in fact, now I can witness to this. I grew up at that time. You know, I remember the balloon masses, and I remember a priest coming up on a motorcycle up the main aisle for mass. So I know about the strange implementation, which, as you say, had nothing to do with the conciliar documents. But there was, I think, a lack of Episcopal leadership at implementing the council. Yeah. And we suffered from that, for sure. Yeah. From on high, I mean, with Jadot making these appointments of people in their early 40s, it's like, buckle up, we're in for yeah. a rough ride for decades. And we yeah. were. Uh, you know, on, what, what I'm house. reminded of yeah. uh, is a note card uh, that Hans Urs von Balthasar sent to Joseph Ratzinger, who had mailed him his latest book, which was yeah. Cutting Edge Pastoral Theology. And Balthasar said, look, Joe, in the future, don't presuppose the faith propose it yeah, in yeah. an ever more vibrant and compelling way. And yeah. I think Ratzinger cottoned on to that advice because that became the defining uh, theme of his life. The yeah. faith needs to be proposed. I'll tell and, you something. I wrote a book some years ago called and Now I See, and it's just sort of an introduction to a lot of the major themes of Catholicism. Well, a college professor in the Chicago area told me he, he used it for his class. And a young lady came up after class and said, you know, I, I was kind of amazed at this book. I, all I knew about Catholicism was, well, they're against abortion, they're against homosexuality, they're against, you know, gay marriage. I had no idea what they're <laughs> these for. things to say about, you know, about God, yeah. about the cross, about resurrection, about eternal life. Ay, 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 there's the problem. Right, we we right, weren't right. proposing the faith in right, a compelling right. way. I know. And we weren't teaching. I, I bet a lot of lay people, even now, don't know what we were talking about a few minutes ago, about right. the sanctification of the world. Absolutely. Right. Sure, which sure. is a principal teaching of Vatican II. Sure. But it was, as we well know, hijacked by forces of the culture. What's well, so time. easy to despise what you don't know. Yeah. Uh, in your book, you assemble so many disheartening data. But for me, the most distressing datum was this little vignette you recount about the comedian on yeah. Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that's right. Who's telling the audience, you know, yeah. my wife is Jewish, my mother wants to see right. when she'll be converted. And then he asks the audience, can you imagine anything crazier yeah. than somebody actually voluntarily becoming a Catholic, and everybody and he, goes wild. And he was born and raised a Catholic. Right, I know right, him. Right, He's right. born and raised a Catholic. And so, right, that shows where the culture is. Sure. Right. Um, yeah, God help us. No. Yeah, you're right. It is depressing. Bishop, in, in the light of all of this and what's taking place, and, and obviously the change in your life is becoming a bishop, yeah. how have you felt and what's been your experience in reaching out to your priests as the father, as, as a bishop. And you had, obviously, as the rector to the seminarians, now it's a bishop to the priests. And how have you encouraged them and, and been able to speak to them? I put a big stress on it. You're yeah. right. Now, I'm not the ordinary of the diocese, of course. so I can't assume that role. But I'm, I'm bishop of a, a region, yeah. L.A., pretty big region. And I do gather the priests on a regular basis. And I try to make sure we don't just do business. The trouble is, often when priests get together with the bishop, it's to go over, you know, the the concerns of the deanery and what about this meeting and what about that. I want to make sure we always have something um, scriptural that we talk about our, mm -hmm. our life mm -hmm. of prayer. Um, 
I've tried to encourage them strongly in the wake of the McCarrick thing, which which was a blow to priests, I mm-hmm, mean, mm-hmm. to the lay people, of course, but to the overwhelming majority of good, holy, and dedicated priests, it's been a terrible blow. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they're in the front lines. And what I what I get, you know, the, the tears of, of rage and the tears of frustration, the parish priests get that all the time from sure, their people. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I've encouraged them to think about it as a moment of renewal, as an opportunity to rededicate themselves. One thing I did in my region, we have a lot of different uh, orders represented. So a lot of religious communities help in the parishes. I said, I wonder if each of you could help us with resources from your own uh, spiritual traditions to help us understand what it means to be priests. We have a strong Franciscan presence out in in my part of the- You're welcome. (laughs) I appreciate that. And uh, so I've tried to do a few of those things, but- Do you sense uh, a movement, um, greater hope, Joy in the, in the I, I do. Uh, in the wake of the McCarrick thing, I, I gathered each of the I have four deaneries in my region. And so each one would have, I don't know, about four or so priests. Uh, first of all, they all came. I said, we're not going to do business. We're just going to have a session of, mm. of prayer and, and sharing some of our, our frustrations and hopes and so on. They all came. In each case, we sat, I mean, for two hours and then ended with uh, mass. But um, yeah, I sensed Yes, the frustration, but but a renewal of of uh, dedication yeah. among the priests. I, I think of the scandals, the bad news, the single worst thing that has ever happened, the single greatest crime we've ever committed against God was Good Friday, deicide, mm-hmm. and you know God didn't just make you know straight the. I mean, he he took the single greatest evil and made it the source of the salvation of the world, the single greatest grace. Talk about grace abounding, you know, and. It took a while to sink in, you know, Clopas and his friend, hours with a stranger on the road to Emmaus until finally he breaks the bread and their eyes were open. They circle back and they return to the apostles, you know, who are gathered in fear, wondering what happened. They're like the laity, Clopas and this unnamed companion telling Simon Peter that the Lord just spent hours with us conducting a Bible study on his first day, da- his first day back from the dead. <laughs> you know, and Peter must have been wondering, you know, while well, we were here, you know, uh, and I think Clopas might have said, well, maybe if you hadn't denied him three times, he would have been here too, you know. <laughs> it, it's an occasion for accusations, yeah. you know, laity, clergy, you know, but instead they just go back and bear witness. Our hearts were burning, mm-hmm. our eyes were open in the breaking of the bread. In a sense, thanks for being his apostles. Jesus appears, does the same thing with the apostles. It seems to me this is also an opportunity, not only for the bishops and the religious orders, but for the clergy and the laity Mm -hmm. to unite in a partnership that shows that the greatest darkness is precisely through that through which the the light will shine more brightly than ever before, as it did on Good Friday. It took them days to recover, but if, you know, Easter Sunday was played out the way our Lord chose to do it, there are a hundred ways he could have done it. Resurrection is always out of darkness. It's the devil's masterpiece, but there's a greater artist at work. A divine artist, And that's Aquinas used that image all the time of God as artist, and God can take even the deepest shadow, but make it ingredient in a design of extraordinary beauty. So even as we say, as we should, how horrific this is, it is indeed the devil's masterpiece, but the devil is not God's rival, right? The devil is a fallen creature whom God allows to work for God's purposes. But God can take even this terrible darkness and make it part of a, of a splendid Amen. picture of his own you know, design. Uh, so we can't, we have to give the devil his due, but we can't give him you know, too much authority. Sure, and recognize the difficulty <laughs> in the struggle, but that it is not the end of the story. 
Right. So a word of hope for us. Right. I mean, he doesn't have the last word, but a lot of people aren't even willing to give him the first word. Yeah, right. They simply disbelieve in him, yeah. which is one of the cleverest ruses of the devil to get people not to believe in him. Right. You may remember Monsignor Knox saying, modern yeah. man doesn't believe in the, in the devil, but the devil is the best explanation for modern man. <laughs> yep. Great. Well, thank you so much. And up next, our panel and our guest will share their final thoughts, faith in the midst of scandal. Please stay with us. There's no such thing as vocational unemployment. Right. Yeah. All right. For the baptized, we all have charisms. We all right. have this work of love that God is calling us, has prepared us for, has gifted us for. There are people out there waiting for what you have been given yeah. to give. And in God's providence, you are the one. Yeah. Even if you don't know who they are yet, even if they haven't been born yet. When God created you, he made you like no other person. You are unique, singular, and unrepeatable. So shouldn't your college experience be the same? At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. You'll discover lifelong friends and mentors who will welcome you, challenge you, and encourage you. Because we believe as Catholics, we are not called to hide from culture, but transform it. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself and an educational experience as singular as you are. Back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. Regis, would you like to start us off? Yes. Uh, bless you, uh, Bishop, for coming. Uh, it's, uh, it's made a difference. Your book uh, is wonderful. It's a God-awful subject, bloody awful, but uh, uh, it's chock full of, of insight. Uh, I think of that line from Kafka, that a book should be like an axe mm -hmm. that breaks uh, the frozen sea that lies beneath us. Uh, mm -hmm. And you have succeeded in doing that. And that's pretty remarkable because it's thin as toast. I mean, it only took you three weeks uh, uh, to write. It, it took some of us a bit longer <laughs> to read because it is so searing. You quote almost everybody, but you didn't quote George Bernanos, uh, I don't think. Mm, and no. there is a, a passage in one of my favorite essays of his, Our Friends, the Saints, where he talks about the church as this great transport company mm. whose business is to carry passengers to paradise. The only trouble is the damn engine keeps breaking down. The management company is, is just incompetent. But what saves the train and the passengers are the saints. They, they are the witness uh, to sanctity, uh, to the living presence of God, which keeps the rest of us, I think, honest and filled with hope. You know, you think of Mary on the afternoon of Good Friday. Who could have been more disconsolate, disconsolate than she? And yet we speak of her as the star of hope. Hope is an obligation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you remind us of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I appreciate that. Thank, Thank you, you, Regis. Scott. Yeah. Well, bless you for coming. Bless you for writing. Uh, I'm grateful that a little book can go such a long way in bringing consolation. And as I said, I, I hope it's a first step. But I, I come back to the idea of uh, 
the church is a family of God, and the clergy and laity, and it's not a paternalistic arrangement, you know, because the laity are called to be grown children and adults and apostles, and you know, there's a parental role to be sure for the clergy, especially the bishops as shepherds. But friendship, I think, is the key. Partnership, not egalitarianism, but not a kind of paternalistic authoritarian mm-hmm. formality where, you know, uh, everything is about appearance. And so I thank you also for the gift of friendship. And I, I, I remember it, you know, at Mundelein when we would sit in the cafeteria and I'd watch you talking to future priests discussing Bob Dylan or Thomas Aquinas and seeing them being formed in friendship, in conversation, in a pastoral way, but always in a theological way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a theologian, you're not a pastor in spite of being a theologian but because of your, th- your, your th- and likewise, yeah. to be a pastor requires that kind of depth yeah. that the church needs for ballast, for an anchor. And so I would encourage you to extend fr- friendship among your brother bishops as well as the clergy, but also with the laity there, mm-hmm. because I do feel like this is an Emmaus moment. And they can circle back and, you know, explain the inexplicable. Why would Christ spend most of Easter Sunday with these two lay people, you know, that Peter might not even have been able to name, you know? And then again, to spend the rest of that day opening up the scriptures for the apostles themselves. The darkest, most dismaying and discouraging event suddenly brings the deepest and greatest abiding joy. And if it can happen back then, there's no reason to suppose And I think that our Lord wants it more than we do. We can look to the saints, especially John Paul, and see what happened in Poland. You know, councils won't save the church. Christ will. And he can work through the documents, but ultimately we're not saved by documents. Not even the inspired one, but the incarnate one. That's right. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you, Scott. Bishop, your final thoughts. Maybe just a quick story. Um, This was many years ago. I was at a conference. And uh, I was making my way through the general area where people had their, you know, wares on display. And I forget why, there was nobody there. I was alone. There was one woman behind one of the desks. And I wandered over there to look at her books. And she said, oh, you're Father Barron, aren't you? And I said, uh, yeah. She said, oh, I've, I've been following your, your work. And, um, you know, the, the devil hates what you're doing. And I said, oh, I hope so. <laughs> and she said, it's burning my memory. She said, but you know, he's a lot smarter than you are, and he's a lot more powerful than you are. And even as I tell that story now, I, I have kind of goosebumps, because I wonder at times if she was an angel, because <laughs> she was the only person in that room. And it was said with such kind of prophetic clarity. Yeah. And it stayed in my mind that, you know, of course she's right, right, you know? But so when I bring that to prayer, and I do a lot, I'll say, yeah, that's true, but Christ is stronger than he is. Yeah. So I'm not smarter than the devil. I'm not stronger than the devil. That's true. He can outsmart me. And it's the devil's masterpiece. In a way, he, he outsmarted a lot of us, you know. Right. But Christ is smarter than he is. Yeah. Christ is stronger than he is. And so relying on that, and I'll, I do bring that before the Blessed Sacrament. I'll, I bring her words a lot. And I'll say, I know, I know. I can't do this. I'm not as smart as the devil. I'm not as powerful. But Christ is. And so if I let him... I surrender to him. Let him work through me. And I think that's the key now for all of us in the church, is this is the devil's masterpiece. That's true. And if we're trying with our own little skills and our own little even protocols and so on, as good as they might be, that we're going to outmaneuver him, we won't. But we have to rely on the Lord, surrender to the Lord. We become his. 
Yeah. Right? My priest is not mine, it belongs to, to him. Yeah. The, the, the uh, spiritual life of a layperson is not his or her own, it belongs to Christ. So that's my maybe last little exhortatio, okay. my little fervorino is to say, <laughs> Thank uh, you so much. the devil, we have to turn everything over to Christ. Amen. Thank you so much. Again, we just want to thank you, Bishop, for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Um, if you would like, you can receive an article, the Tintoretto of the Reform of the Church that Bishop uh, has written for us. If you go to uh, our website, faithandreason.com, or call the number that you'll see at the screen, uh, you'll be able to get that. Uh, I was reflecting as I was preparing for this on, we were doing youth conferences through Francisco mm. University of Stoneville, and it was in the summer that just everything was crazy. and. And as I was praying, one of the things that I sensed was that the Lord was inviting me as a priest to stand up in front of all the kids and apologize and repent mm -hmm. to them. And I would do this at many conferences. I probably did six or seven conferences. And it, at the end of every conference, having done that, standing up as a priest, I had kids come up to me crying and thanking yeah. me. There were a couple of occasions that we had a, a bishop with us, and I invited them to do that. And only one of them did. It was mm -hmm. Bishop Baker. Yeah. Um, who is now in Birmingham, Birmingham. I think just, just recently retired. retired. Yeah. And, and I think back on this, and I still somewhat get emotional, um, watching a bishop stand in front of the kids whom he loved and whom he had poured out his life yeah. and, and repenting on behalf of priests and the church. And this was just, I think, a beautifully sacred moment. And, and that's how I felt some ways when I was reading your letter, Bishop. Just mm. you as my father, um, speak for us and I'm just very grateful for the work that you've done and what you continue to offer us and and yes it's a horrible subject but this is not a horrible book it's a mm. beautiful hope and and I just want to thank you as a as a priest and as a father so God bless you for that. if you would close us with prayer sure okay. let's pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Heavenly Father we give you praise for your wisdom for your power for your goodness for the way you guide us in the church we are passing through a difficult period, but Lord, we, we place our confidence in you. We place our hope in you. We know that you will never abandon the mystical body of your son. Lord, give us grace, give us peace, give us hope. We make these prayers through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit come down upon all of you and remain with you forever and ever. Amen. 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 Good, thank you so much. You're welcome. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740 Two eight three six three five seven.